Good morning and welcome to Women in Australian International Affairs, a La Trobe Asia webinar. My name is Beck Strouding. I'm the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia at La Trobe University, Melbourne. I would like to begin this event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which La Trobe University sits. I would also like to pay respect to people, both past and present, and extend that respect to other Aboriginal Australians who are watching this webinar. Part of our role at La Trobe Asia is to engage the public in meaningful discussion and debate. And we are committed to supporting academic research and collaborations within and beyond Australia and Asia. Today's event celebrates the publication of the latest edition of the Australian Journal of International Affairs. This is a special issue that has been co-edited by myself and Dr. Jasmine Kim Westendorf at La Trobe University. This issue, titled A Critical Analysis of Australian Foreign Defence and Strategic Policy, features articles written by early and mid-career women scholars from across Australia. This project arose as a response to ongoing issues around women's visibility and representation in Australian international affairs. Our launch of this special issue will proceed in two parts. In the first hour, we will be discussing some of the ongoing challenges that face women's participation in the discipline and the vocation of international relations, and also discuss some of the strategies and responses that might help redress gender imbalance in the field. In the second hour, I'm going to hand over the chairing duties to Jasmine, and we will present some of the groundbreaking research of women scholars that was published in the special issue. But for now, I would like to introduce our stellar panel for this first session on women in Australian international affairs. So first, Jasmine Kim Westendorf is a senior lecturer in international relations in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy at La Trobe University. And as I mentioned before, the co-editor of the special issue that we are celebrating today. Thank you for joining us, Jasmine. Sarah Davies is an Australian Research Council Future Fellow and a professor at the Centre for Governance and Public Policy at Griffith University. Sarah is also the co-editor of the Australian Journal of International Affairs and joins us from sunny Queensland. Thank you for coming, Sarah. And finally, Sarah Percy is an Associate Professor of International Relations at the School of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Queensland. She has generously contributed her expertise through the process of putting together uh, this special issue. So thank you for joining us today, Sarah. We will have time for audience Q&A in the second half of this session. Uh, and I will ask that you use the Q&A function, not the chat function. So I'm going to begin uh, this, this uh, panel session uh, by asking Jasmine, one of the first uh, articles, or well, the first article actually in this special issue is an article that we wrote together on uh, women in Australian international affairs. And it provides a kind of state of the field, if you like, about issues to do with representation and visibility. So I'm hoping that you might uh, start the conversation off by giving us a rundown of the key findings of that article. So much, Beck. 
Uh, and it's really great to be here um, sharing this research with you all today. So thanks for joining us. Um, one of the reasons that we wrote this article was because there seemed to be a bit of a, a proliferation of events, magazines, um, journal issues that didn't have any women authors publishing on topics of international relations in these venues that were speaking directly to issues of international affairs and international relations. And to a general uh, you know, pundit in the public, it might look like women just aren't very engaged in international affairs in Australia, in the practice, the study, um, policy making, uh, the media and so on. And so what we tried to do with this article was to do a bit of a survey of uh, what um, rates of participation women are actually engaging in international affairs in and what challenges face women in terms of their participation and equitable representation. We drew on data available um, on the Australian context and internationally, and we also conducted a range of surveys and scans um, specific to Australia about the, um, the enrolments at high school and undergraduate level courses in international affairs related uh, areas of study. We looked at um, the gender breakdown of academic staff in politics and international relations departments in the country. We um, conducted an audit of the women uh, publishing in two of our key journals that work in this area in Australia. And we also looked at citation breakdowns and gendered citation practices, ultimately to try and understand why women, where the women are and why women are so often left out of public um, uh, debates and fora on international affairs. So in terms of our key findings, to start with, the, the first question was really, where are the women? You know, are women... Um, what, how, how do women match up against men in terms of their participation in this field? And we know that the absence of women and the lack of diversity among intellectuals negatively affects, it really undermines scholarly and policy discourse and it also undermines um, the practice of international affairs. It means that we only see part of the picture of international politics uh, and that has really severe implications for the types of ideas, strategies, research, discussions and so on that are adopted and pursued in this field. So if we look at where the women are, they're actually here in almost equal rates to men. At high school levels, women, uh, young women in Victoria account for 60% of the enrolments in global politics. At tertiary level across the Australian universities, we were able to survey, women make up between 50 and 75% of undergraduate enrolments in degrees related to international affairs. Uh, and when you look at the PhD level, those enrolments drop somewhat to about between 40 and 47%, depending on the, um, the data sources. University hiring of women is uh, more equal at the lower levels than how it has been in the past. Women, based on our surveys, account for roughly about 39 to 40% of, uh, of staff in Australian universities, but that is in, in politics and international relations programs, I should say, in Australian universities. But they tend to be um, concentrated at the lower levels of academic pursuit, and they tend to also be in more vulnerable positions, which is a real issue now, given the COVID crisis. If we look at the field of international relations, the practice of international relations, DFAT and ASIO hire women at higher levels into their graduate programs and have done so for a number of years. Since 1985, graduate um, entrants to DFAT outnumber, uh, women graduate entrants outnumber male graduate entrants um, by a significant margin. But women do experience really significant obstacles in terms of sexism, discrimination uh, and harassment, which has been showed by a number, a number of authors um, 
on these issues. And that prevents them from reaching the higher levels. So if you look at um, the ambassador level, only 21% of Australia's ambassadors are women. Uh, women are critically absent from a range of parliamentary mechanisms. They've never led any of the major Australian white papers or reviews of international affairs. The second major finding um, was around, uh, if, if, we, if we take that first finding, that women are there in equal numbers, particularly at lower levels, why aren't they being represented equally in the key public um, and academic fora? The second finding was that there is actually consistent and systematic underrepresentation of women in public arenas and in the profession of international affairs, as well as in scholarly curriculum and, and, um, uh, and uh, journals and, uh, and, and publishing venues. Women make up only 25% of the cited sources in Australian media articles on international affairs. And many media publications still don't naturally reach out to women as commentators on issues of international affairs, particularly when those issues are in the harder security sphere of, um, you know, security, guns and bombs, wars and so on. Women do tend to be more represented in some of what, what some people might consider the softer areas of international relations. And I'll come back to that issue of disciplinary boundaries um, in a moment. In terms of journal articles, what I thought that for this forum, given that many of us are academics, it's useful just to share some of the findings around authorship. We found that there's been a significant change over the last 20 years in the publication of women authors. By surveying the number of women authors published in the Australian Journal of International Affairs and the Australian Journal of Politics and History, we found that during the period 2000 to 2009, um, women made up fewer authors than they do now. That was particularly stark in relation to the Australian Journal of International Affairs, where in that earlier decade, women made up only 18% of published authors. Um, there was a significant number of issues uh, and volumes, uh, issues that had no women uh, authors published at all. In contrast, in the more recent decade, since 2010, uh, women make up 32% of the authors published in that journal. So it's been a really significant uh, increase. And since 2014 in particular, women have contributed more than a third of the articles per volume uh, to that particular journal. Um, in contrast, the Australian Journal of Politics and History has quite a different experience uh, and um, their, their rates of publication of women authors are quite similar now, but in the earlier decade, they had higher rates than the Australian Journal of International Affairs, which I think speaks to some of the issues around disciplinary boundaries and the broader remit that the Australian Journal of Politics and History has had which has meant that it's been more open to some of the areas that women work and publish in, in this. When we looked at that, we thought it would be really useful to understand why that big shift happened. And what's very clear and what we've shown in the article is that our active editorial engagement with the issue of women's representation was responsible for that really significant turnaround in the publication rates of women. So um, when there was a shift in, uh, in editors in uh, 2014, um, to Nick Bisley, uh, he uh, specifically attempted to increase the number of women on the editorial board to send the message um, uh, around the remit of the journal being considered more broadly. Uh, and more recently, uh, Sarah Davies and Ian Hall have um, pursued methods around directly targeting and inviting uh, women to contribute special sections, um, invited articles, uh, commentaries, and paid close attention to how women are represented in, in the print edition of the journal, which really shows the role that individuals do play in the representation of women in scholarly fora. Just briefly, in terms of citation rates, if we've seen this significant increase in women publishing in this area, has that meant that women are being cited more by their colleagues? And by looking at the, um, the citation breakdown, the gendered citation breakdown in the Australian Journal of International Affairs, 
we've shown that that's not the case, that women are not being cited um, at levels that reflect their participation in the sector and the rate at which they're actually publishing in key journals. Uh, so that's particularly stark. I won't share all the numbers, um, but that's particularly stark where authors, uh, where articles are authored solely by men. They tend to be far less likely to, um, to cite women. But even where articles are cited, uh, are authored by at least one woman, um, the rates of citation of other women are still lower than what you would expect based on the publication rates of women. So what I think this speaks to is that there, there still is an issue around what's considered the canon and what's considered, um, uh, which authors are considered most important to cite in articles. And there certainly needs to be more work that we do as scholars to try and redress that balance to ensure that we are citing um, uh, those in our field fairly and accurately to really reflect the contributions being made by the much more diverse community of scholars working in this field um, today. That's likely to be even more of an issue in this era of COVID, where early data seems to suggest that women, um, as a result of the extra pressures of uh, childcare, family responsibilities and so on, are submitting articles at far lower rates than men during this shutdown period, um, which will have significant issues on their um, uh, on their publications, on their research outputs, access to grants, promotions, um, and therefore also their capacity to influence things outside of the academy in terms of media, policy making, you know, government decision making and so on. I think ultimately what we've got here is also an issue of um, uh, gender stereotyping within the field of international relations and disciplinary border policing around what really counts as international relations. And there are still certainly tussles around what is real international relations and what are those issues that women might work in at the margins. Uh, and if we consider some of the push, or the pushback against interdisciplinary work in this field, I think that might also help explain why uh, women continue to be um, relatively underrepresented in some of the, uh, some of the key fora that we've been looking at. So just to sum up, what we've found ultimately is that women are interested in and engaged in the study, the practice um, uh, of international affairs in almost equal measure to their male counterparts, but there are really serious structural challenges to their equitable representation in key fora and also to their career progression and their opportunities. There's been some progress towards greater gender inclusion, participation and visibility, uh, but it's been fairly uneven uh, across academia, the civil service, the media, um, and politics. And that really underscores the need for more work to be done to address the structural biases that continue to work against women's equitable representation and participation in those fora. Uh, that requires individual and collective efforts to redress it. And I think the really positive thing about this is that addressing the underrepresentation of women will also set us on a path to addressing the underrepresentation of a number of other marginalised groups who have been traditionally um, made more absent from this field of, of study and practice. Uh, so for instance, people of colour, uh, scholars uh, from the Global South and so on, where no doubt the, the statistics, if we looked at those around representation and participation would be even more stark than what we've presented um, in terms of women's participation. Thanks, Jasmine. I think in the process of um, compiling this article and, and, and the two of us were kind of uh, kept digging into different metrics uh, for how we can understand representation and visibility. And one of the things that stood out for me is that there are a lot of women and girls that are very interested in international relations, as uh, our findings demonstrated, but that they are not 
are always reflected in the public conversation, in the magazines uh, and, and the sorts of fora that you were talking about earlier. I mean, do you have a sense in which uh, that is, because our, our article looked at the Australian context, but do you have a sense about the kind of broader implications around uh, those visibility issues in Australia, but also globally for international relations as a, uh, an academic a discipline, academic field, but also the practice of international relations? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. I think on a really, uh, on a foundational level, the fact that there are so many young women interested in this area of research, but that the senior people in the field, in the, the universities that they study, when they look at who is on, the, on TV, in the media, who are the leaders um, in politics and in the civil service, that they, they are not women, that sends a very clear message that you might well be interested in this, but it may not be the field for you. And I think as someone who teaches in this area, it is something that we have, um, that, that our young women students come up with quite a lot. You know, I, should, should I really go into this area? Will I really get a shot at it? Because it doesn't look like a lot of people like me do get a shot at this. So I think the issue of representation and visibility is really critical to shaping the way um, uh, young women uh, pursue careers and study in this field. It also affects the sort of networks and supports that are available to them. We know very much um, and there's been so much evidence around the importance of networks um, uh, and, and supports in terms of uh, career progression for everyone. Uh, and we also know that men tend not to provide those to women as readily as they do to men. And so if we have fewer women in senior positions, either in academia, civil service, politics, who are able to provide that sort of mentorship and leadership and support to younger women, that's also going to affect the sorts of opportunities that they're likely to get if they do decide to pursue um, careers in this area. I think in terms of the broader implications, I, for me, one of the really critical findings from this research was that there are systemic issues at play, but we as individuals are all part of the system and there are significant things that we can do as individuals to start redressing these imbalances. So if we just go back to the issue of citation practices, um, there is a lot more that we can do to amplify the voices of people who are publishing really critical work in this area but don't have the visibility as a result of those structural um, and historical biases and, and silences. Uh, and if we do more as individuals through our citation practices, if editors, um, as the AJIA has shown, uh, take stronger proactive action to ensure um, greater inclusivity in, edit, in, uh, in, in journals and publications, if we think about our teaching practices, who we put on our curricula, if we think about conference participation, workshops, who we invite, um, who we put on posters, all of that can make quite a significant difference, even though there, there will still be underlying structural issues that will continue, um, that we will collectively need to continue to, to address. But I think the role of the individuals is actually really important here. Um, I think the other thing is that if we, if we think about our role as academics, for those of us who are academics, um, integrating a gender analysis and an analysis of power not just in the classic guns and bombs power um, sense that it's sometimes taught, but if we integrate that analysis into our broader teaching of international relations and international affairs, we'll be providing our students as well as our colleagues with a greater capacity to make sense of some of these issues of inclusion and exclusion and the importance of um, pushing disciplinary boundaries to understand um, the way power is working within disciplines to shape who gets heard, why, on what issues, 
uh, and so on. So I think those broader implications are really critical and do um, speak beyond just the Australian experience. Yeah, I think we can. Um, we, we might want to uh, come back to this issue of what is IR and some of these issues around uh, building in a gender analysis as part of uh, mainstream international relations, rather than being seen as something that you know you put on a separate panel as something that is incorporated as a you know a key tool for understanding uh, international affairs. Uh, and you also mentioned uh, what what can the individual do uh, and the sorts of we, we analysed. Uh, the AJIA uh, and Sarah Davies. I'd really like to turn to you as uh, the co-editor of the AJIA with uh, Ian Hall. Uh, in your view, uh, what are the continuing barriers that women face in terms of academic publication? It seems like a good time to be talking about these barriers uh, while we're in the midst of uh, a global pandemic. Thank you for having me and can I also congratulate everyone who's in this special issue. It's been a fantastic, it's a fantastic collection of papers and I really want to congratulate Beck and Jasmine for coming to us with this special issue idea and working with us and developing it and it's just such, it's such a privilege for AJIA to be, to be publishing these papers. So thank you again to everyone. I think uh, the paper that Jasmine just presented, when you read that paper, and I really do recommend everyone to have a read of Beck and Jasmine's paper, is that you see that there are some structural barriers still in place here that affect the way in which um, women, when they enter into this field, there's a lot of participation, there's a lot of en interest, there's a lot of energy. And then you see with that attempt to try and break through these sorts of male-dominated areas, it gets a little bit harder and gets and the, the fight gets tougher and you have to, you know, really try and uh, sometimes push ahead, sometimes on your own. Uh, and I think sometimes in the space of publications, so if we're thinking about early career academics here, it's similar in the sense that you kind of all enter in the same space where you've got, you know, your 40% teaching, your 40% research and your 20% administration. But then what we also see start to happen is that generally we see that there is sort of a little bit of a gap that starts to emerge where you see that men in the profession start to be able to chip away a little bit more successfully at the reduction in the teaching and the administration load and push a bit further ahead in the research space and then you see women are still trying to manage three components of their jobs and they can often be doing that even when they are going up in the profession and so they're having to do all tasks very well and so what that leads to then is choices that women are having to make about when are they going to get their research done how are they what time do they have to do it what choices do they make about where they can get optimal impact and so I think what's happened then is that you have, um, and then on top of that, you've also got this natural, we know from the TRIP survey that, you know, there does tend to be, um, you know, population, you know, that different groups have different interests. In particular, it seems that women tend to be really interested, generally not, not everyone, but tend to be interested in the way in which security and international relations intersects with other areas, other disciplines, other issues. Um, so, you know, if you think about then a journal like Australian Journal of International Affairs, which has had a history of kind of publishing more of that strategic Asia-Pacific focus, um, there are large, there are, there are issues, years of issues where you've kind of had 
either women not have time to publish and to get published in this journal or they're just not interested in trying to get into this journal. So, you know, you've got these competing um, issues going ahead. So for us, what's been really important is to think about actively seeking out, uh, you know, people who are in early mid-career and saying to them, we are here, we want to publish you and we will wait for you or we will make sure that if you do have time to publish, uh, we will get that article out for you sooner. So there's those types of behind the scenes actions that we're trying to do sometimes to acknowledge that people have, you know, if they get a revise and resubmit, we might extend the time that they've got to do the revisions. So, you know, so we're not saying, huh, your, your world is going to magically all just disappear for you and you can have eight free weeks to just dedicate yourself to revising this article. We know that's not always the way for life for people in, in these situations. So we, we're trying to do these little behind the scenes things that people may not always know about, but it's about a personal relationship with, with, with our authors. And the other thing is definitely, which picks up on what Jasmine was saying, is this effort to try and make sure that the journal is inclusive. Um, and that, that cuts across areas of, of gender research, but it also cuts across, I think, as well, other areas where, you know, human rights, indigenous rights, uh, thinking about the way in which we engage in our region through development space, through um, refugees and migrants. Um, so there's a whole areas of international relations, small i, small r, that are really important that also need to be published in this journal. So thank you, Sarah. I know that Jasmine and I are very appreciative of the support that you and Ian offered for our special issue. Uh, and you were with us every step of the way. And I think that, uh, you know, reflects uh, the, the, the sort of um, solutions, I guess, that, that you offered uh, in, in terms of how to make the journal more inclusive, how to um, encourage uh, women to publish uh, in a journal uh, that has tended to focus on the strategic, the Asia-Pacific, as you mentioned. I'm wondering whether you could um, maybe tell us a little bit more about what the rest of us can do as individuals to support uh, women's publication as well. So I really liked the idea of talking about the gender balance scanner or the gender balance assessment tool. And I think that probably is a really important thing that even if not every journal is yet putting in place as a requirement prior to publication, as good, you know, as a good collective, we could start to have a think about when we publish a piece, are we acknowledging, you know, the contribution of emerging scholars? Are we acknowledging the the writings of a diverse group of scholars who may approach this issue from different perspectives and not just a casual site, but an actual, you know, reflection on that work perhaps in the piece. Uh, I think it also is really important that we talk about building a community. Um, and so, and that is what, when we cite each other, that is what we're doing. We're building a community and we're now contributing to our own canon. Um, and I think the other thing that's really important for us from the journal perspective is a desire to get the word out there that we really want to publish uh, uh, you, <laughs> you who are listening. So, you know, we have, uh, we've had in the last couple of months about 10 more papers than what we would normally get uh, over this period of time. And one of them, so, and our average is around every month, we're looking at around, you know, 
four to five paper submissions and then we usually will get one of them will be a, a female or you know woman author a female author um we'd be really keen and we don't actually get a lot from australia and new zealand um where we don't get as many submissions as what we thought coming in that we would get and i think that's because a lot of people are making choices at the moment about where they want to be heard they want to be published in international journals and we understand and support that of course we do but we would ask if you could think about maybe factoring us in in your three-year plan at some stage um, because what it also does is it contributes to the community here it changes the narrative here Our students get to read those voices that jasmine say are missing you know they get access AIA, which supports and promotes our journal, the Australian Institute of International Affairs. They get to see on the front cover, you know, that there are female authors in this area. And I think it's really important that we also think about, you know, the promotion of, of, our, of, our, of our intellect in, that, in the Australian journal as being seen not just by us, by fellow scholars, but by students as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm just going to uh, just remind people that you can ask questions through the Q&A function. Uh, and I'm just uh, going to turn my attention now to Sarah Percy. Uh, what, so we've, we've talked about, you know, kind of what we can do uh, as individuals, as, as women, scholars, working in international relations. But my question to you is, uh, as, as a leader of, uh, among international relations women, how do we bring other people on board? How do we work constructively with men or with um, senior professionals? Uh, how do we work professionally or constructively with people, uh, with women who might think, well, I had to do it the hard way so everybody else can do it the hard way? What can we do to ensure that particularly early career researchers, but also mid-career researchers um, can, you know, get a fair opportunity uh, in this discipline? Yeah, it's a really interesting question and I just wanted to say thank you for having me and also thank you for having me. Um, earlier last year we I got to come to Melbourne to comment on all of the articles in the issue and it was a really enjoyable experience and it is a terrific issue so congratulations to everybody involved in that. Look, the question of what we can do on an individual basis to actually get things to function is a tricky one. Partly because you know how people often say that if you've been brought up by very dysfunctional parents, you don't necessarily know how to parent. And I think we've got the same thing with mentorship, where we had for a long time a situation where there are some people who are just natural mentors and they would do it whatever, but actually where there was no conscious culture of mentoring women around issues about gender, around issues of practical things, like how to handle your maternity leave, how to handle coming back to work, how to handle looking after elder parents, how to handle all of those responsibilities. And I think for a generation of people in academia, it was almost a taboo discussion because you were unprofessional if you were having that discussion. And so what we have now is a lot of people who are really trying to do the right thing and hopefully more and more people trying to engage in those mentoring relationships, but with no model of how to do it from the generation that preceded them. And if anything, that previous mentorship model can look quite different and so one of the things that I often think about is the prevalence of people going, going for beers after work or going to a conference and not going to bed at 8.30 because they're really exhausted and thrilled to be away from home, but going out to the bar. And all of that informal networking is still really important in our discipline, and it can often be extremely gendered. 
you know, it can often be that that actually turns out to be an almost all-male affair or involving mostly men. So it's getting people to reflect all the time on when you're doing that casual mentoring, who are you bringing in and who are you leaving out? And I think for those of us who are in the position that, that I'm in now, where sadly I transitioned out of the early career research phase a while, a while ago, is thinking about how to make sure that, that I'm giving people some of the stuff that I got that was very effective for me in terms of mentoring, but also having the conversations with people that nobody ever had with me because that was in that era of time where people thought it was really unprofessional to have a conversation about how to handle your parenting responsibilities and your work and how you get that balance to go. And I think the more, if there is a tiny silver lining to the current crisis, it's that we've allowed our domestic situations to creep into the workplace. And I actually think that's really good. I think the more of that we do, the better. The more that we have a reality that we are actually juggling all of these things, and it is hard, and it does make a difference. The more we can have those conversations openly, hopefully, the more we can break down some of those invisible barriers that Jasmine and Sarah and you were all talking about before. One of the things that you said, Sarah, uh, at the workshop that we held in Melbourne last year, which has stuck with me, uh, is that women need to be more ambitious. So I wanted to ask you, uh, how, do we, how do we be more ambitious? Because sometimes... I think I need to be more ambitious, but then I get scared that I'm, you know, I'm not going to be able to publish enough to meet my research benchmarks and that I should just, you know, put aside quality and go for quantity. Can you sort of give us a, a way of, of, of thinking about how we can be more ambitious? Because I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> Well, I do think it's really important for women to be more ambitious. And by that, I mean not just aiming at really top quality journals, but dipping your toes into a, a pond that you think is not your pond. I think that one of the things we need to be aware of, particularly around issues of Australian international affairs, is that a lot of the men who comment on this issue with enormous success are not actually specialists in Australian foreign policy. They're people who do something else and are like, oh, I'm interested in that. I have a few things to say. I'll just say them and everybody will be fascinated. And what I want to do is to get all of these amazing women scholars who say things in fields that are adjacent to Australian politics to say, you know what, I do have some amazing commentary I can give on these issues and people will be willing to hear it if I give it. So that's part of it is it's stretching yourself into new fields or maybe to hire um, really, really amazing journals or really pushing yourself in your program. And look, the question of how to do it is hard because it's scary and we're not all good at doing it. And, you know, like everybody, I'm not always very good at taking my own advice <laughs> in this regard where you have to think about saying, well, no, actually, I should really push this that little bit further. The key thing to doing that actually is to create a culture in the workplace in particular where women's ambition is really supportive. And that means things like, I think people who are in management positions at universities need to give people benchmarks that reflect the fact that if you're going to be aiming for a really top journal, it's going to take you two or three years from submission to publication date for that piece to come out. And that there needs to be some recognition about the length of time that goes in that process and rewarding ambition. But also, again, in the casual mentoring that we have, of saying to someone, you know, I think that's really cool, but I think you could do more. I think, you know, push it to the next level. Take your idea to a bigger place or take your journal 
submit it to a different journal and just see what happens. But for that to happen, there does have to be, we have to sort of, I'm also a big believer in this slow academia idea that we are better off having people who produce a smaller number of really amazing things as academics that do have an impact rather than lots and lots of things that, that maybe don't have that kind of impact. And that has to be, that has to be led by the people who are in charge of all of us. Um, and we need to be agitating and reminding them that they will reap enormous benefits if they can help us be ambitious and think about doing things in new ways sometimes as well. Absolutely. Uh, we do have about a bit over 20 minutes for some Q&A uh, before I hand over uh, the chair to Jasmine for our second session. Uh, we do have one question up. Please put your questions in through the chat function. Uh, it would be great to get uh, a range of questions that we can answer. Uh, so the first question, and I might, um, I might start by asking this one to you, Jasmine, and then I'll, I'll turn it to Sarah Davies and Sarah Percy's. But this is, uh, this is an interesting question from uh, Nick McCallum coming from Island Business Magazine about um, how scholars can work with the media to change the balance uh, in the voices that are talking about international affairs. And I think that this sort of, this question goes to the heart of some of what we're talking about, about visibility and representation. So I might start with you, Jasmine. Do you have any thoughts on how we can work with the media? Oh, yeah. Look, I think that's, really, that's a great question, Nick. Um, but I mean, from where I sit, I actually think some of this has to do with the media working a bit better with us on some of these issues. My sense is that um, because of the pressures that journalists and media um, professionals are under to um, get stories out quickly, they often have a very short lead time for comment. Uh, and I know that in my experience, juggling a small child, um, a number of responsibilities at the university, including, you know, teaching admin and so on and trying to, you know, get to childcare pickup before they charge us extra, um, the short time frames can really be an issue because I may not be able to get back to journalists as quickly. And I think that maybe when you're when media are requesting comments from women, um, ensuring that you've just got a little bit more lead in time can really make a huge difference in our capacity to um, to comment and to comment substantively, um, uh, and to work with media on those stories. I think um, one of the other issues might be around uh, I hate to say this, but around Twitter. Um, I think that a lot of the visibility of women comes through, or a lot of the visibility of scholarly work generally and scholars as commentators comes through Twitter. And there are some people who are more active on that platform than others. And again, I think some of that does reflect the stages of careers and life that people are at. Um, and that there are um, groups of scholars who as a result of their family and other commitments don't have the capacity to be as active online on Twitter as possible. It means that they're maybe not being picked up as often uh, as commentators on certain issues. So I think as scholars, we could do more to refer media to our colleagues who are experts on topics. And I think that goes to what Sarah Percy was just saying um, around um, the willingness, particularly of, uh, of, our, um, of our men colleagues to speak on a whole range of issues and maybe there could be a bit more generosity in bouncing um, queries on to female colleagues who work in similar areas. Uh, and I think maybe that's also something that the media um, uh, can do as well to ensure that they're not always going to the same people but looking, um, looking for others. That said, I know university websites with profiles can be a nightmare <laughs> to, <laughs> to fish through. Um, so it's a, it is a bit of a tricky conundrum. 
Yeah, it is tricky. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering, Sarah Davies, did you have anything that you wanted to add about this sort of relationship with the, the media? Uh, I wanted to compliment actually what Jasmine said about being kind and sharing it with others. So one of the things that have been happening through the COVID-19 outbreak has been that sometimes I've been asked to comment on it and there have been particular areas or particular issues that I know I don't necessarily have quite the expertise. This is not Sarah Percy me about trying to, to duck and dive, but it's about, you know, <laughs> there it is. But there's some areas of vaccine, you know, vaccines that I don't know. But I always try and make sure that I recommend colleagues, you know, women colleagues, uh, early career, mid career. Uh, I, I also, so just trying to, and then letting them know that I've done that. Cause I think that's also really important. You know, if you're going to recommend people, try and send them a WhatsApp or a text message. So you say, you know, I know you're dealing with a three-year-old and a five-year-old today, but if you've got time just to quickly check your email or check your WhatsApp, someone's going to be asking you to comment on this. And then I also, with media, what I've found through this outbreak as well, and I think that complements what Sarah was saying, I found out that actually journalists are quite, being, you know, who I've dealt with are aware actually in ways that they haven't actually been in the past that we are, our personal and our professional have blended, crashed, collided together. <laughs> um, so they know, you know, I've, I've said to them and I think it's really important that we do, I say, look, I can't talk to you till after three, but I be, I'm all yours after three, but could you just give me to three? And then I, I'll say to them, look, I can deal with uh, an email. Can you send me an email and I'll reply to you by email but please don't try and call me, you know, until the certain time. Um, so I think it's also about us gently, gently pushing back and saying, you know, this is my situation. If you want me to talk about it, I will. I will talk about it. I know you've got a deadline, but I've also got this, you know, I've got my job as well as a home job as well. So could we find a common path here? And it might be just because of who I've been dealing with, but I've actually found that the journalists have been responsive to that. They've been respectful of that. They've liked the fact that I've given them a clear window when I'm available and, and they know that I'm there at that time, you know, and that, and then, you know, there's been a few times where I've had some, you know, my, my little coworker coming in saying, I'm hungry. Can you get me something to eat? please?" And that's gone down quite well. <laughs> um, the other point I wanted to make too was about layering and it comes back to how we get found. Um, something that was said to us actually from a person at the conversation uh, that it's really important that we try and think more about um, how we can make use of the publications that we've done. How can we tweak them a little and inject our insight into a, a contemporary topic and try if we can to get a six to 800 word blog out there not doing new work or new research, but just thinking about how the research we're doing can be tweaked a little, condensed, put into a blog, and that also helps us be found as well, particularly in these types of you know situations when there's an event, something's happened. So layering is what I call it, trying to layer as best as we can. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what you're saying, Sarah, about they're kind of feeling a bit uncomfortable about um engaging in topics that we might not have or might not we might not feel like we have the strongest understanding of i mean i feel that a lot and uh sarah percy you, you were saying that we need to stretch ourselves you stretch outside of what we consider to be our expertise one of the things that does make me a little bit uncomfortable is um is that when i see people uh men in the field who are talking about issues that i 
know that they don't really understand. I think I don't really want to be like that either. So mm. there seems to be a bit of a, a, a fine line here between stretching ourselves but also, um, you know, being able to engage with the media in a really positive way that enables us to demonstrate our expertise very clearly. So I'm wondering if you can respond to that conundrum. It, it is a serious conundrum, right? And I think that there's a reason why, you know, um, maybe sometimes we shouldn't cross into areas where we know absolutely nothing about. But I do think that we have to remember that very often when academics are asked for media comment, what you're being asked for is something that will be 10 seconds on air or two or three sentences in a newspaper article. They don't want a doctoral dissertation on the subject. So actually, you, by virtue of your education and your intelligence and your general background, are often able to comment confidently in a way that you're being asked to comment, much more so than you might think, right? So, so that's the first thing, is, is that just being aware that you're not always being asked to have chapter and verse, right? And to really, really understand it. That being said, I think we can all have egg on our faces and I'm sure we've all seen sometimes where we think, see somebody on the media and we think, you don't know anything about that. What are you doing? <laughs> and I suppose it's making sure you draw those boundaries. So if it's something with, which is within your broad field, probably just have a go. But the other thing, and it reflects what Sarah was saying, is that we also have to be better at communicating our work. And I think that in an environment at the moment in particular where I think universities are under serious threat right now, I think it behooves all of us to learn how to publicly present our research to audiences which are not academic. And that's really hard. And again, that's a structural thing. And I think that means that our management has to reward people who are good at doing that in different ways. It shouldn't just be an add-on that you do for your research. You should actually get significant credit for the ability to do it. Not every piece of research that you will do will be transferable, and not every academic will be interested in doing this. But for those people who are and can do it, A, you absolutely should do it, and B, you should get credit for doing it. And this is something that comes back to that mentoring piece as well. If you are a person out there listening and you think, actually, I do have a really great idea and I don't know how to shape it. There are lots of resources available, including emailing a colleague you know who does it all the time and asking them how they do it. The people at the conversation are generally really good. If you pitch them an idea and say, I've got this idea, if they like the idea, they'll often help you shape it and craft it so that it can come out into that wider forum. But um, and I suppose coming back to the original questioner's question as well, one of the challenges in this area too is that often I think that media bubble and the academic bubble don't coincide. And I know with some of the radio stuff that I've done, if, if the producer I worked with sent out a call for people to comment and I sent out a call for people to comment, we would get completely different people responding because our networks are different. Mm. So you do have to sometimes find a person, if you're in the media, find a person who is a good source of other people. And hopefully that person doesn't mind flicking you an email and saying, try this. And of course, women also know stuff. People of color also know stuff. Are fantastic resources for finding people. If you are someone in media and you want a different style of voice, look in those databases because they're terrific. Thank you. There's a lot of um, really good ideas, I think, for people working in the media about how they can 
you know, contribute to amplifying the voices of uh, women IR scholars. Uh, we have time for maybe a couple more questions. So if we can keep our answers shortish, I should be able to get two or three in. Uh, the next one comes from our friend Susan Harris-Rimmer. Hi, Sue. Uh, she wants to ask Sarah and the panel about peer reviewing. Uh, so many international law journals are reporting a crisis in people not reviewing anymore, especially senior people. Um, so she would like to know how uh, how can we encourage fairness in reviewing? Uh, what are the incentives and disincentives for reviewing? Um, and should we? Oh, this is this is a good question, Sue. Uh, should we think about not accepting articles if people refuse to review? So I might start with Sarah and then and then move it across the panel. Thank you, Sue. Um, lovely to have a question from a colleague. Uh, I think, so we, what we've been doing again in the journal during the coronavirus outbreak has been acknowledging that reviewers may not be in the position that they were prior to the outbreak. So they may have put, you know, again, they may be feeling under pressure. So we have acknowledged that in the emails and we've talked about, you know, being able to provide little bits of extensions, maybe condensing the reviews. So there's different ways in which we've communicated uh, with our reviewers and then with our authors to let them know. I hope they feel like they've been communicated with to know the situation that we're in. Um, we have, it's always an ongoing issue. I don't think, I think like coronavirus tends, you know, there's been a lot of talk about it, but what I think has happened is any type of issue that's been bubbling on the surface has now just been magnified times 10, you know, during this crisis. And so for this, we were having troubles with reviewers. Uh, it usually takes a, a, quite a number to get people to commit. I think that comes back to what Sarah was saying. You know, we're in a situation today where people are, uh, are already, you know, time poor and the demands are high and they're trying to make decisions about what they accept and what they don't accept, what they say yes and no to. So I think it's up to us as editors to think about how we engage and communicate with our reviewers. It's important that we um, have an editorial board that also supports us and communicates to their school and, you know, and to their colleagues that what we're trying to do. And we don't exploit our good reviewers. And I think that's really important as well. In terms of rewards, um, I would say that it's one of those situations where I know it's going to sound, but the reward is, of course, we acknowledge, but the reward is also that you're getting to shape and create the contribution to our field. And I don't think we talk a lot about that, but it actually is a really important thing. We get to know what is being written, what's being researched. Um, we get to see and make decisions that might actually make a real difference to people's career, you know? So I think it, it sounds a bit schmaltzy, but I think it's actually really important <laughs> to, 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 to see reviewing as a service um, that can actually be really helpful to people in their career. I don't see it as being schmaltzy. I think you're absolutely right. It is a service and journals rely upon that service. I also find that when I'm reviewing, I learn a lot. So mm. I find it a, a, most of the time, not always, but most of the time, um, quite a beneficial experience. Uh, and in the interest of time, 
Uh, we do have a, a question for Jasmine. So if you have anything to add to Sarah's response, um, you can do it in your response. But I will also give you uh, this question as well. This comes from um, Badra, who was one of our one of my international relations students uh, from last year. So thank you for tuning in, Badra. She said that uh, as Jasmine mentioned, trying to balance between personal life, career, and work is a very difficult um, balancing act. So she would like to know how can we as females uh, stop feeling guilty about trying to uh, parent uh, as well as, um, you know, balance our, our responsibilities uh, at home with work and career and would like to know a bit more about your experience. Uh, look, um, Badra, <laughs> I, um, I've spent a lot of the COVID shutdown feeling like a terrible parent and a terrible academic. So. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I, I don't have a great answer for you on that. I um, have done a lot of meetings with my toddler crying outside my office door because she doesn't understand why after lunch I have to go back into the office. Um, and I've done a lot of late nights after she's gone to bed um, just to catch up so that I can have the times during the day so that she doesn't feel like I've abandoned her. Um, and I've been doing that while also about to have another baby. So. I don't think there's a simple answer to that. I certainly haven't been a parent long enough. Maybe the Sarahs and others on this call who've been parents for longer than I have have a better way of dealing with the guilt. But I think for me, one of the things that's been really tricky is um, managing the expectations of my workplace, um, which I think even though universities have become much better at addressing issues around um, women returning to work after uh, maternity leave um, and around flexibility, I think there's still a long way to go in terms of expectations. And I think for, in my experience, a lot of that has been cultural around the expectation that my um, that, that some of the more senior people in the university and some of my colleagues have had around what I ought to be doing and what I ought to be keeping up with. And for me, that's been the hard bit around the work guilt that I can sort of, in my own mind, I, I think I've got a way that I can, you know, muddle through and work out what's important um, and try and manage the, the different bits of my life. Um, but if workplaces are still putting pressure in a cultural, sort of a, a social way on women to be doing more um, than they are um, actually employed to do or than, than is reasonable and to do it at times that is unreasonable, um, I think that's something that, that could make a big difference to the guilt and the sort of being feeling like you're being torn between a few different areas of work. And I think that goes beyond academia. From my um, discussions with other women um, in similar uh, positions, I think it's something that, that cross-cuts all sectors, all areas of our society, because ultimately there is still a long way that we have to go as a community in terms of how we um, support women in balancing the various women and others who parent um, and, and care um, in, in supporting the various bits of their lives so that they can do all of those things um, relatively well and so that workplaces are reasonable in their expectations. I just want to add to that. I think that I, I sincerely hope that, at, at least with universities, that they will recognise how this pandemic has affected people very differently. Um, because, you know, for, for people who are homeschooling or dealing with toddlers, the experiencing the experiences of working at home are quite different from somebody like me, who's just me at home 
you know, sitting on the couch doing my work. And so that's going to be, uh, I think it's going to become a really important conversation mm. uh, in universities and, and it should be and, and we should all be advocating uh, for, you know, for, for that to be taken into consideration into mm. the future. We do have, I've got time for one more question, which I'm going to direct to Sarah Percy. This comes from Kate. Uh, it has been mentioned a couple of times that men tend to be gatekeepers uh, around information and social networks. How can we better influence these men to share their gatekeeping role with intelligent and capable women without, and this is the, <laughs> this is the kicker, without seeming to threaten their own position of power? Well, if I could solve that one, I would, uh, I think I would be in line for various international prizes. However, <laughs> I think that there are some really important things to note there. One is I have gone past the point of caring whether or not I threaten people's power. Um, and I will just be annoying on this point anyway. And there are some things I think that as I've become more senior in the field, I am increasingly less willing not to call out obvious and egregious bad behavior when I see it. So I've spent quite a lot of time, both publicly and privately, emailing people who are still presenting, for example, a brand new journal with no women contributors <laughs> on, on international security issues and saying, this is, we are so far beyond a point in time now where that sort of behavior is acceptable that you really need to stop and think. So it's partly calling people out, which I don't do rudely. I do it very politely, but I do always call it out. And I think also sometimes it's about, this is an area in which male allies can be really, really crucial. Some of the most successful conversations I've seen in this space have been a male colleague who gets it saying to a male colleague who doesn't get it, you know what? You really need to do better. Um, because that makes it less about sort of a gender war and more about how can we actually amplify people's voices. And I suppose what I find so frustrating about it is that you're quite right that those people in gatekeeper positions are really important, but it's not like there aren't amazing things that are being said out there in the world that you could just improve your perspective so much by allowing that diversity of voice in. This isn't about sort of some sort of snowflakey, I all feel all sad because I'm left out of the conversation. It's people's voices have really vitally important things to hear. We need to make sure we're able to hear it. So I suppose it's about constantly calling it out when you see it. If you happen to know someone who is in that gatekeeper position working to influence them, and cultural change is slow, but this is not going to be a fast fix. This is going to be partly a generational fix. And I think that um, something you mentioned, Jasmine, in your talk is that part of the reason why we're having this conversation is because we had Melissa Conley Tyler directing the Australian Institute of International Affairs for a long time. And we had Nick Bisley, who's a fantastic male ally, editing the journal in 2014. And they've laid the foundations that help us have this conversation now. So change is going to happen. We just need to help it along a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, that, that point uh, that you raised uh, Sarah about uh, the fact that there that there are people around. Uh, I'm glad that you mentioned Melissa Conley Tyler, who also attended our Melbourne workshop last year. So shout out to Melissa. We do have allies that are around, um, and they have been, you know, very useful for, um, I guess, improving the visibility of representation. And I think that's what um, the article that Jasmine and I wrote. Uh, 
that's what it found is that there have been um, these improvements, uh, but that there still is uh, some way uh, to go uh, with some of the structural issues in our workplaces, um, in the media, uh, and so on. Uh, I do want to uh, just there's a there's a quote on the webinar chat. Uh, it's quoting you, Sarah Percy. I have gone past the point of caring if I threaten someone else's power. And next to that is in capitals standing ovation. So I think that all oh, I agree. Amen. So <laughs> thank you for sharing that in the chat. Um, I think that we're we're at about eleven o'clock. So. That brings our first panel to a close. Uh, I really would like to thank uh, Sarah Percy uh, and Sarah Davies from Zooming In from Queensland, uh, and also for the contributions that you've made, the support and the leadership, Sarah, in your role uh, as, as the editor, and Sarah Percy for, for providing um, your expertise as well uh, throughout the process. Uh, so thank you. Uh, we really appreciate it. It's been a fascinating discussion. I once again learned so much uh, through these discussions. Uh, and Sue Harris-Rimmer says, yes, Queen. And I 100% agree with that as well. Um, now what I'll do is I'll hand the chair over to Jasmine uh, and she'll introduce uh, the next session. So thank you. So for the second hour that we've got in this um, launch of the special issue this morning, we wanted to showcase some of the really groundbreaking research that women scholars in Australian universities are doing and that we published as part of this special issue, um, which cover issues of uh, Australian foreign defence and strategic policy. And really what this collection of articles does is show how, um, how widely and deeply engaged Australian women scholars are on a whole range of issues to do with Australia's international affairs um, and how much they do have to contribute to um, both scholarly and public debates um, and how much the onus is also on, uh, on many of us to listen and to make sure that we're, we're seeing where they're publishing, what they're publishing and so on. So we're really glad to, um, to have a number of papers being presented today. We'll uh, ask each... Um, uh, author or set of authors to speak for about five minutes to share with you their major conclusions um, from their paper uh, and then there'll be about five minutes for questions uh, after they finish speaking. We don't have a lot of time today so do pop your questions as they come up in the chat so that we can uh, get through as many of them as possibly as, as we possibly can during that five minute uh, Q&A session. Um, before we start, though, I'd like to acknowledge that one of our authors in the special issue, Dr. Sharon Lee, who is a lecturer in security studies at the um, at Macquarie University and wrote on the myth of Australia's strategic policy, couldn't be with us here today, but I'd really strongly advise you all um, to check out her brilliant article on um, the discourse around strategic policy uh, in Australia. So the first paper that we'll um, hear today is on the politics of strategic narratives on regional order in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, free, open, prosperous and inclusive. Uh, this has been written by Dr Monica Bartwaldata, who is a senior lecturer in international security at the University of New South Wales, and Dr Priya Chako, who is a senior lecturer in uh, international politics at the University of Adelaide. So over to you, Monica and Priya. Uh, thanks a lot, Jasmine, and uh, Beck for the opportunity to be part of the special issue and to the excellent panel discussions uh, just before. Um, 
I'll give a brief account of the insights from our paper and then Priya will uh, take any questions. Um, as Jasmine said, the paper is titled The Politics of Strategic Narratives of Regional Order in the Indo-Pacific, Free, Open, Prosperous, Inclusive. And in the paper, we investigate the idea of the Indo-Pacific as a strategic narrative that promotes particular visions for regional, for regional order by political actors in Australia and India in particular. We draw on uh, Ms. Kimmon et al's 2013 definition of strategic narratives as, and I quote, representations of a sequence of events and identities, a communicative tool through which political actors attempt to give determined meaning to the past, present, and future in order to achieve political objectives. So using this definition, we argue that strategic narratives of regional order constitute efforts by political actors to shape perceptions of roles and expectations of state behavior with the hope of creating particular relations of authority between states in a region. Now, although Australia and India, along with Japan and the US, have produced similar Indo-Pacific regional, regional order narratives and have influenced um, and been influenced by each other's constructions of order in the region, each of these narratives has distinctive emphases and narrative histories that reflect their particular domestic and international political and economic preoccupations. And by analyzing these narratives, we get insights into the points of convergence and dissonance between their conceptions of regional order. And you can then identify the distinct political and social dynamics that produce these conceptions and the strategic objectives being pursued through each regional order narrative. The conceptual framework for the analysis, briefly, combines the strategic narratives framework within, with a cultural political economy or CPE approach. The strategic narratives framework allows us to examine how actors form and project strategic narratives about issues, identities, and order in the international system in order to pursue specific strategic goals. And a CPE approach facilitates an analysis of how, or rather why, certain actors form particular strategic narratives, looking at both uh, discursive factors as well as structural factors that relate to material power, including institutional logics, media ecologies, and control over resources and how these two sets of factors work together in the formation of strategic narratives. So using this framework in our analysis, we find that India and Australia's respective Indo-Pacific narratives converge greatly in terms of the signifiers that they use to articulate a vision for regional order in the Indo-Pacific. And their narratives have been promoted in quite similar ways. Both narratives portray Australia and India as key actors, key Indo-Pacific powers, and they advance uh, the notion of a stable, rules-based, open, inclusive, and prosperous Indo-Pacific. But the discourses that they draw on and the narratives that they produce have different underpinnings in relation to the material power interests and the political dynamics that they reflect and attempt to shape. They're rooted in many ways in historical understandings of how each country sees itself within the region and in, rela in relation to other major powers therein. Um, to enduring domestic, economic, and political interests and ideas around what regional order should look like. So for India, a stable, open, inclusive Indo-Pacific rests fundamentally on multipolarity, where no single singular power dominates, where China um, does not appear to be excluded or isolated, and Russia is included. And this vision is linked to long-held goals around domestic, political, and economic agendas, particularly the imperative of India's economic growth, the foreign policy dimension of which depends on regional stability, foreign investment, the integration of Indian capital into East Asian production networks, and securing access to resources in Africa and Asia, investing in regional connectivity, 
for the cultivation of new markets uh, in other parts of the world to fuel India's growth. Um, like Australia, India emphasizes the centrality of an ASEAN-led regional architecture within the Indo-Pacific, but it calls for an Asian way of engaging in regional governance through such architecture, drawing on older foreign policy ideas that date back to the post-independence government of Jawaharlal Nehru. And India's emphasis on a rules-based regional order, particularly since earlier in this decade, reflects specific concerns around sovereignty and territorial integrity in light of skirmishes with China and China's growing economic and political power. Coming to Australia, in addition to being influenced by the adoption of the term in the Pacific by countries like Japan and the US, Australia's regional order narrative is shaped by its historical or historic alliance with the US and the latter's rebalancing towards Asia in the earlier decade, China's rise and growing military assertiveness, as well as India's emergence as a significant economic and strategic actor. Where India's regional order narrative emphasizes multipolarity, for Australia, a stable Indo-Pacific necessitates a dominant US presence, and therefore the maintenance of a long-standing uh, status quo since the end of the Second World War. Uh, that's perceived as increasingly under threat now, particularly in light of China's rise and its increasingly assertive military behavior. For Australia, the term rules-based generally has been used as shorthand for, for freedom of navigation, which speaks to both defense and security concerns, as well as Australia's economic imperatives, uh, both linked to Australia's long-standing anxieties around its place in Asia. And here, the narrative of an open and inclusive Indo-Pacific relates to concerns around Australia's lack of integration in Asian regionalism at a time when it's actually become increasingly linked to Asia's economic growth, particularly China. An open and inclusive Indo-Pacific then centers Australia as a key actor in the region, while also accommodating important democratic sorry, um, important democratic and influential friends like the US and India. So to conclude, an Indo-Pacific narrative constitutes both Australia and India as two central actors in a vast economically and strategically significant region and accords them legitimacy as Indo-Pacific powers. It also provides Australia further discursive grounds to construct uh, India as a natural partner with shared values and interests based on their democratic identities and it accommodates other actors that are important to both. But the significant convergences in their narratives are driven by divergent factors or agendas. This helps explain, for example, why India is wary of its joint naval exercises with Australia or others like the US and Japan being perceived as Indo-Pacific in character because, um, because of these differences, uh, despite sharing Indo-Pacific terminology with these states. Um, and I think, on that note, I will hand over to any questions. Thank you, Monica. We've got uh, one question. We've probably got time for one question. Um, and one of the ones that's come through is around what these narratives mean for cooperation among so-called like-minded Indo-Pacific states. Okay, so I think I'll, I'll answer that one. Uh, so I think what our analysis shows is that this idea of like-minded states needs to be problematized a little bit, that like-minded states, like, so like-minded states are usually taken to mean the United States, Japan, um, India, Australia, uh, sometimes Indonesia. But what our analysis actually shows is that there's not that many similarities when you get a little bit deeper. Um, so, yes, they all do talk about freedom of navigation, for instance, but as Beck's book, recent book, has shown, actually there are quite different understandings of what constitutes freedom of navigation. India's views are actually 
more similar to China's than Japan and Australia and the United States is. So like, we need to actually be a little bit more skeptical about this discourse of, of like-minded states and actually look at the details of what, uh, what, what these countries are actually saying about the Indo-Pacific and what the rules-based order should be. Yeah, thank you so much. That's super interesting. I think, unfortunately, we're having to move through this so quickly, but I'd really encourage everyone in the audience to read the papers and get in touch with the authors um, if you'd like to discuss any of the issues a little bit more. So thank you, Monica and Priyo. Priya, sorry. Um, and uh, we'll move to Danielle Chubb's presentation of her paper on perceptions of terrorism in Australia from 1978 to 2019. Danielle Chubb is a senior lecturer in international relations at uh, Deakin University. So over to you, Danielle. Hi, everyone. Um, thanks so much for having me here today. It's a, it's a great privilege to have worked with this um, great bunch of uh, scholars and women, um, both as part of the special issue and also as part of the um, workshop process that was um, that you got a little bit of an insight into in the first half of this um, panel. So thanks to those of you who stuck around. Um, I've been asked to speak for just um, four or five minutes on the on the paper that I presented. So I'm just going to set a timer here so I because it's not very long. Um, so I, my paper, as Jasmine said, was on the perceptions of terrorism in Australia. Um, I've been working on a larger project around public opinion and defence and foreign affairs for, for quite a few years now. Um, and this project that I'm working on looks at different issues in defence and foreign affairs, you know, troop, troop deployment, the US alliance, um, international citizenship, multilateralism, and how the how public opinion and policy have interacted. And when I was looking at the issue on terrorism, there were a few things I wanted to, I really dig into. So that other project is, um, in, if you're interested in that, it's, it's a book that I've just finished and it's gonna be published later last year. And the quantitative analysis in that was done by Ian McAllister. But this project, I wanted to kind of, I, the data shows us that um, in the space of terrorism, on the face of it, policy and opinion look like they're quite well aligned. Um, and so if you, if you just look at the data, it seems that the government is reacting to um, public desire to have stronger responses to terrorism. But I thought that we needed to dig a bit deeper into that. And there's a, there's a kind of a puzzle, I guess, at the heart of, of this data. And that is that, that while the public is fearful of terrorism and while it indicates that it wants a strong policy response, the policy response comes, um, there aren't any more significant terror attacks. There's no real threat to Australian lives in Australia and the public remains fearful. Um, and there's very little evidence as well that any of these domestic responses um, actually have any impact on the level of threat or risk. So the question I wanted to ask was in this paper was how and why Australians have come to view uh, what, it, what amounts to infringements on their civil liberties, and there's uh, indications that Australians are willing to um, accept some infringements on their civil liberties as an acceptable trade-off in the interest of countering terrorism. And in order to try and understand this relationship, I think we have to look beyond the data and we have to look into the political context in which these conversations are being had. And so methodologically, I wanted to employ a, what I call a critical juncture framework. So I look at um, different key events and not just those events but the kind of political environment around them and I think that this allows for a greater understanding of, of how provisional reactions and decisions in Australia are influenced by these contextual dynamics um, 
and are driven, I argue, essentially by a self-reinforcing dynamic that has implications for future events. So these um, struggles for meaning over what these different events um, have meant have taken place, of course, in each instance as well um, of a broader political environment. And these, are, these three junctures have revolved around, in this paper, the 1978 um, bombing um, outside the Hilton Hotel in Sydney, which um, has been memorialised as Australia's first terror event. Now, there's no uh, actual proof it was a terror event, although there's a lot of evidence, um, circumstantial evidence that it was. But even if it's not, even if it wasn't, and even if it wasn't the first, uh, it certainly has been remembered as that, and it's invoked by policymakers as Australia's first terror event. Uh, and at that time, there was a um, quite a robust political debate around um, ASIO. There was a lot of um, political partisanship over the role of ASIO, which if any of you have been listening to the 11th, the uh, ABC podcast, they talk a little bit about that. Um, there was a, a real concern by the left that ASIO had been politicised and, and this meant that there was very, a lot of suspicion and a lot of pushback. Uh, and, but what the Hilton bombing brought into the debate was this idea that intelligence apparatus wasn't well equipped to deal with homegrown terrorism, with terrorism, and that the police apparatus was also wasn't well equipped because the military had to be called out to protect um, the leaders who were in Australia at the time. I then moved to look at the um, the second critical juncture around the 2001-2002 uh, terror attacks in the US and in Bali, and the ways in which um, conversations that started to be had back in the late 1970s really um, came out again at this time. So there were the same kinds of conversations, the same kinds of debates, and a lot of legislation then started to be pushed through. And that continued again in 2014 with the rise of, um, uh, of ISIS and the higher incidences and coverage of, of homegrown terrorism in Australia. Um, and so I won't go into each of these events because I don't really have the time now, but what I do argue in the article is that um, there are kind of two ways in the 21st century that Australia has sought to respond to terrorism. Uh, one of these has very little public support, had, has had low public support to start off with and that has decreased. And that is um, the types of support for war on terrorism types of foreign policies as a response to terrorism. And especially those responses that um, involve troop deployments as part of a military intervention abroad has not got a lot of public um, support and has fallen out of the favour with the public even in the years since. Um, that's what the data shows us. But instead, and as part of what I've called it this self-reinforcing dynamic, the public has tended to support more and more the continual expansion of the country's security apparatus as a preferred response. And so in this environment, the conversation naturally falls and it's seen as a natural fall to how to organise and equip security and intelligence agencies. And that this conversation has dominated any kind of conversation we have about counter-terror at the expense of, of any kind of robust discussion over alternative um, responses to terrorism. Thanks so much, Danielle. Uh, we've got time for questions. We don't have any questions that have been popped in yet, but if anyone has one, um, jump into the Q&A section. Uh, and let me just ask you while we, while we see if anyone else has any other questions, Danielle. Um, in terms of what those alternative approaches might be, what, what, what could they be? So that's not something that I've, I've looked at. Uh, my, my, my interest is really in um, the question of why we've been having the conversations we've been having. But I think we don't know what those alternative responses are because we see so much um, bipartisanship around the kinds of responses that exist. 
and there hasn't, there hasn't been a lot of conversation in Parliament or really in the media. And a part of this is to do with um, the lack of transparency around intelligence. And so a question I think needs to be asked about whether there needs to be greater access to the public to the kinds of rationale behind the decisions made by um, intelligence agencies and greater ability for you know high-level ASIO people to talk about things because there's a the legislation at the moment really ensures that there's no ability for ASIO if the government doesn't want them to talk they, they can't and so these conversations haven't even you know they haven't even begun so I think that's where the, the problem lies yeah that's really interesting thank you we've got a question that's come through asking uh, if there was another major 9-11 scale attack somewhere in the world do you think it would change opinion on engagement in international war on terror type operations? I mean, I think that that we can only answer that question in the context of um, who the attack was against, uh, how opinion is lying with regards to the Australian alliance and whether or not Australian interests are seen to be damaged. And I, and I don't... Um, I think that if Australian interests were directly uh, at risk, yes, the Australian public has been supportive of troop deployments, certainly. But there's no automatic guarantee, even in the context of the Alliance, I think that Australians would support um, that kind of operation. Yeah, great. Thanks so much, Danielle, for Thank your you. um, presentation and discussion. So the third paper that we'll hear a summary of today is on um, the Australian Foreign Policy White Paper looking at gender and conflict prevention, uh, written by uh, Dr Chris Agius, uh, who's a senior lecturer in politics and international relations at Swinburne University, and Dr Anna Munko, who is an adjunct lecturer and co-founder of the Gender Consortium at Flinders University and currently working at Care Australia as the head of gender equ equality and social inclusion. So over to you, Chris and Anu. Hi everyone and uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk about the paper that we've uh, worked on. Um, I'll try and be brief and I'll let Anu talk to a certain side of the papers, deal with this, the CSO side. Um, but the paper comes, um, it sort of fits into the, the threads of the special issue in terms of how we understand concepts of security, um, the def not just the definitional elements of them but the scope of them but also what gets to be included when we talk about or analyse foreign policy and security here. So our focus was on the 2017 foreign policy white paper and much of it stems from work and conversations that Anu and I had earlier done working on issues around WPS and the National Action Plan. Um, and what we found with, with turning our analysis to the white paper of 2017 was that gender was missing pretty much um, and the voices of different perspectives around security were really quite absent in this paper. So if any of you are familiar with the, um, the foreign policy white paper that was published a number of years ago, it was long anticipated, there was a 14 year gap between that and the last one. And this one talked about threats and opportunities. It was primarily dominated by concerns about China, China's position within the region and globally and how it can affect jobs in Australia, how it can affect, affect relations. There's a great deal of uncertainty as well around the relationship with the US, um, changes in the region as well in terms of security, economics and defence. So what we find in that white paper is generally this, this, this 
umbrella term threats and opportunities as well. So as we started doing the paper, we also found that in academic, academic and scholarly circles, there's actually very little work done on white papers themselves uh, as big sort of visions of foreign policy, how they're going to guide foreign policy direction for the next however many years. So we worked within certain confines, looking at coral bells, for instance, distinction between a declaratory and an operational policy between, for instance, um, intent and actions in policy. But we still considered white papers to be important documents. But then what we also found is when we looked at the scholarly literature is that the only things that were being analysed were the China angle, for instance, or the defence and security angle. Women were missing, the wider concerns about sustainable peace and conflict prevention were missing. And so we analysed and thought, well, in this document... Um, the stated goals of peace, stability, prosperity, for instance, were actually perhaps being undermined by the focus that the foreign policy white paper took. And here we've looked at gender and we looked at the inclusion of gender in particular. And we found that gender was pretty much missing or was spoken about in a very limited way. So, for instance, it's mentioned around just 13 times in a, in a very big document. Um, and there was a gender box which looks at the economic benefits of gender equality around stability, economic imperatives around this. Um, but it was all directed back to the national interest. And then when we returned to the idea of the white paper and looked at the submission calls, you know, to bring the public into the debate, we found that Australian values were a big key theme amongst this. And as a result, um, Australian values weren't actually ma not matching up with the sort of policy directions that the white paper was taking us in, and especially to deal with structural and systemic problems. Um, so... The visibility of women, for instance, was absent and was decided on a cost-benefit analysis. So, for instance, how much, you know, Australia invested in that. But also what underscored a lot of the ideas that were present were around border security, defence, conflict was seen to happen, for instance, beyond Australia's borders in this regard here too. And what we found was actually it was much more fruitful to sort of look at the submissions, especially the submissions by civil society organisations uh, that were looking into or giving their particular views of how they understood security. Um, on that point, I might turn over to Anu because we're probably going to run out of time really quickly um, to talk about the CSO contribution to this because that's what we wanted to highlight in the article and bring out the significance of that. Um. Thanks, Chris. Um, I think one of the things that stood out for us was the fact that um, CSOs um, really noted that what was missing um, in the white paper was a link between um, Sustainable Development Goal 5, which looks at gender equality and promoting peaceful and inclusive societies, which is SDG um, 16. And um, this and this was something that they brought out repeatedly in um, the consultation process around the um, the white paper, and um, one of the you know so the key themes that CSOs highlighted was around the role of gender in conflict prevention. Um, they highlighted issues around militarization and uh, poverty, um, the links between them, uh, a much broader conceptualization of society that uh, so sorry a much broader conceptualization of security that goes beyond looking at national borders but um, it looks much more at the concept of um, human security and then a gendered view of um, human security. So it was, for us, it was quite interesting to see that there were some, there were, there were quite a few voices that were talking about a different approach to thinking about security, but these don't get heard in a, in a, in a, in a, in a foreign policy vision 
that um, really reflects very masculine ways of thinking about security. Chris? Yes, I think we're probably getting a bit over time here. So yeah, but in our approach, we adopted a very feminist uh, security uh, perspective here, which takes in, as we mentioned before, the structural and systemic, you know, roots of insecurity, but also thinking about security well beyond the sort of rational strategic goals and looking at that in a much more sustainable way. And there are different viewpoints there as well, which we can go into, I think, in the question times, in the question time as well, because I think we're a little bit over our time limit here too. Thank you both so much. Uh, so if you've got any questions, pop them in the Q&A chat. Um, first question for you. This sounds like a really incisive critique of the persistent biases in Australian foreign policy. What do you think the barriers to rethinking security more profoundly in terms of gender, human being, structure, environment are? Is it ideological? Is it cultural? Is it gendered? Anu, do you want to? Uh, no, go for it. Um, I'll, <laughs> yeah. yeah, thanks. That's a really great question because I think that question sort of forces us to really rethink how we do security, how we understand what is the role of the state and what, are, what is the remit of the state. So, for instance, in our paper, we talk about the fact that, you know, it is CSOs who are pointing out, for instance, that we have, you know, insecurity in the domestic realm. And the white paper really portions this off in terms of understanding security as something that happens beyond our borders. And in fact, we've got a history of settler colonialism, which is a violent history, and one that, you know, perpetuates this history. Why? Because of this very structures of ideology, culture and, yeah, gender and a whole range of other issues as well. We could talk for a very long time about the economic imperatives that underscore the white paper and that very focus on economic imperatives is driven in such a way that is directed towards national interests. It's inward looking, for instance, while it still you know, purports to, you know, promote security and peace globally but when you're having an inward looking for instance perspective based on Australian values then I think there's something inherently wrong in that sort of conversation I think we need to have a much more not necessarily wider cosmopolitan perspective but one that breaks outside the barriers of how we understand foreign policy to begin with and that's quite an ambitious ask I think. Um. And I think I'll also add that um, from a civil society perspective, what has really bothered us is um, sort of lack of policy harmonization across the Australian government. So on one hand, you have commitments to WPS, you have a foreign policy that talks about sustainable peace, and at the same time, you have investments, you want Australia wanting to be a top 10 arms manufacturer. Um, and really pushing, and, and we know where the economic imperatives of that come from. And that sort of, and, and not having a space to have that conversation around what policy harmonization looks like in WPS is, I think, and this is not unique to Australia. This is a conversation Sweden has as well. It's one of the leading arms manufacturers. So how do you talk about um, peace and security on one side um, and a gendered view to peace and security on the, um, you know, a layer of gender and peace and security, and then also push an agenda that is very, very militaristic. Um, and I think um, Crispy also had uh, findings around who was part of the conversation in oh, yes. um, the, the white paper, and that makes a difference. Who sits at the table and who those voices represent, I think, are really important. And um, I think in, in this whole mix, civil society voices were pretty much not really present um, in the conversation. Chris, you have more on that than I do. Yes, it's, it's in the article. 
<laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the article, we had to sort of really very much unpick uh, and try and find out how that white paper was actually written. And it was a really hard process for, you know, for someone like, like me who's not, you know, engaged or not, uh, I suppose, involved in the inner circles of, you know, foreign policy and, you know, I had to sort of reach out to networks to do this. Um, and our network that, that had been created around this and the work that Beck and, and Jasmine have, uh, have done have been absolutely fantastic with helping us with that. But that was almost a world in and of itself for me to, to sort of navigate at least with the writing of that side of it and trying to find out who wrote that, who was involved in it was really quite a difficult task. But, yeah, we sort of go into what we found and what we could uncover in the article in a little bit more detail there. We're almost out of time. I'm going to sneak in one last question to you both, though, um, from Dennis Altman. Whether you think the current COVID crisis has made the security establishment more aware of the limits of mainstream discourses? I might jump in there and say something on this, and it may... I don't know if it's going to be controversial or not, but basically I think, look, on at the surface we are sort of get, getting the impression that, you know, the discourse is moving along with the realities of what we're currently facing here. But what concerns me is a desire to go back to normal. And, and this normal or trying to normalise things, I think, can actually be a, a significant misstep and a significant problem. I think this is an opportunity for us to rethink how we think about international relations as well as domestic politics. Um, and I just think, you know, the very, you know, crisis that we're suddenly, that we're seeing at the moment in terms of the university funding is one of those outcomes of this as well and how it's hitting a lot of very important sectors that produce knowledge and expertise on, around these issues. I think that's, I think for me, that's one of the big issues around the crisis. Um, Jasmine, can I quickly answer? There was one question there on, on, migra on migrant women and refugee women and whether um, we looked at that issue. In fact, this was an issue that civil society organizations raised in their consultations, that actually we need to connect much more with our diaspora and that there is a missing link in um, the foreign policy paper that talks about diaspora. It doesn't talk about engaging with them in ways that and understand how peace processes work. Um, and that they have significant contributions to make. This is something that CSOs have been pointing out for a while. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you to both of you. Um, we'll have to move on. Unfortunately, we don't have more time for all of these discussions, but we'll move on now to the, uh, the fourth paper we're hearing about today um, on the externalisation of Australia refugee policy and the costs for queer asylum seekers and refugees, which was written by Dr Jazz Dawson who is a research and policy analyst at the Refugee Hub at the University of Ottawa. So, Jazz, over to you. Good morning, everyone. It's about 9.30 at night here in Canada. So, I'm sorry, I'm not all fires go. Um, but thank you, Chris, and um, I know that's a great presentation for me to roll off the back of a lot of my understanding of the foreign um foreign policy paper, the white paper, was based on my sense that it's really out of touch with a lot of Australian understanding of society and human rights and, and what we value. Um, so my paper really looked at the way that queer refugees and asylum seekers are both absent from Australian foreign policy documents policy issue. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, so I'm just going to touch on a few, three points in the paper and not get into the nitty-gritty. Um, the first point being that the article for me was 
first and foremost, just an attempt to bring queer people and rights and theory into Australian foreign policy discussions, you know. Uh, it's interesting talking about, you know, being at the margins of IR, being in queer IR, particularly when I started, it was before even the first textbook came out on queer IR. And for me, that was only a couple of years ago. So um, it's definitely kind of a burgeoning field. And in discussions of foreign policy, I think even more so. There was, really wasn't a lot to engage with of other scholars talking about foreign policy specifically. Um, but there's a lot to be said. So, I mean, I found it very interesting looking at the, the um, white paper that LGBTI rights are not addressed in any way. And maybe naively, I found that quite shocking. Given that there are so many LGBTI and queer human rights abuses in the region, and actually that Australia plays quite a significant diplomatic and, and kind of soft diplomacy role around the world in promoting LGBTI rights. So there's this real distinction between what they declared uh, kind of foreign policy objectives are and what actually like the embassies and high commissions around the world, where they put their money and what groups that they engage with. Um, and it's interesting to me because while women and children are referenced in the paper, there's a complete lack of reference to gender diversity and queerness, um, which is extraordinary given that, you know, the Indo-Pacific region has this, like, amazing diversity of gender and sexuality, including in Australia, and it points to the point that if we're still producing foreign policy documents that don't represent how we, you know, kind of collectively understand ourselves whether it be as women or what we understand a child to be or, you know, inclusive of gender and sexual um, diversity, how can our foreign policies or human rights goals really actually target those people and how can, how can they meet those ends if they're invisible in the documents of the process? Um, the second kind of main point of the article was really just for me, I think, a learning process, to be honest, about tying our regional refugee policy to foreign policy. You know, in so many ways, they are one in the same. Australia has increasingly externalised their refugee policy in the last decade. Um, many countries around the world look to what Australia does um, to see how they can exclude people systematically from accessing their asylum processes. And a lot of this is done through really kind of unique, well, they used to be unique, I would say they're not that unique anymore, kind of unilateral and bilateral policies in the region that really extend Australia's jurisdiction while at the same time trying to shirk legal responsibility or you know, any responsibility for the consequences that that has for those asylum seekers and refugees. So that's like offshore processing to send it, detention centres, uh, you know, turning boats back. Like we, most of us know, you know, the cold sheet of horrors on that front. Um, so for me, looking at those conceptual links, it was interesting and not surprising that in the, in the foreign policy, the white paper is really a securitized framework. The only way in which refugees are dealt with in any serious manner is through kind of language of irregular people movement and through refugee resettlement, which of course the Australian government here is referring to the UNHCR reserve processes, which are extremely limited. Um, and Australia takes a, a fairly small portion of people through that process. So they don't actually have any kind of significant focus in that policy paper referring to refugees and the kind of um, diversity in which people could be found to be refugees is really only 
one type of refugee that doesn't have much to do with foreign policy, really. It has to do with Indonesia kind of diplomacy and, and setting budgets, really. Um, and the third kind of conceptual point that I look at is trying to really like tease out the colonial and, and homophobic histories and, and, and kind of modernities around Australian refugee policy and foreign policy. So while you know Australia really promotes LGBTI rights through its kind of diplomatic channels and through its aid in a lot of ways, and that has to be applauded, um, and at the same time rights are progressing, uh, you know perhaps slowly and imperfectly domestically, they're completely missing from foreign policy um, documents. And in the, for me, this really kind of comes down to setting up this hierarchy of rights where the Australian government is willing to. Uh, support these rights for certain people at certain times and certain forums and it doesn't speak to what they claim really that there's this kind of liberal human rights basis that is of value that is supposed to underpin all of their policies it just doesn't bear out um, and I think you know for a tangible pressure so you know like why is it important why is it important you know if we can look at querying Australian foreign policy and look at the connection between Australia's like colonial relationships with these states whether it be you know Nauru and Papua New Guinea and the the literal exporting of uh, you know colonial era laws or whether it's kind of more neo-colonial relationships we have through money and political agreements between countries I think that that can point to a lot of the responsibility that Australia should have going into the future through their foreign policy um, kind of actions and goals to redress that. Um, and I think these are, are totally intertwined and speaks a lot to both domestically and within the region, the synergy of racism and homophobia that plays out in Australian policies. So. With that, I'll leave it. And thank you so much for having me. I know I missed out on a lot because I'm on the other side of the planet. So I'm sorry I didn't get to engage a lot earlier. And thanks so much to Jasmine and Beck who really supported me while I was writing my paper. So thanks. Thanks Jazz for that great presentation. Uh, so we've got time for some questions if you want to pop them in the Q&A box. Um, I might start though, uh, Jazz, just wondering what do you think it would actually take to get that shift in the way that our civil servants and, and um, sort of approach foreign policy to actually be more open to the sorts of ideas and analysis um, that, that you're calling for? Well, it's interesting to me because I think there's like a real two-track story. I know through my experience of being an LGBTI activist and working on that side, there are Australian people working in DFAT and in our aid programs with our funders in all all of our embassies you know around the world who are LGBTI right champions there's millions of dollars of Australian foreign aid funding going towards projects like the Commonwealth Equality Project that I was involved with which is pushing towards decriminalizing in the Commonwealth um, and I even kind of knew back when I was in Australia that you know there are secret tallies and tabs that go on in DFAT where they are tracking the, the role that they are having through funding and aid on LGBTI rights in the region. So I, I think it's more political kind of positioning and, and you know, I, have, I hadn't really had a sustained engagement with something like the white paper before looking at this. And I think that speaks to some of like the interdisciplinary issues of thinking like, well, that's not in my realm. I'm over here like talking to, you know, the Webbers and the Dennis Altmans who are on this. Um, 
but actually, you know, the white paper is more of like a signaling. And I don't know whether those rights actually being included in the paper would be viewed as purposeful if it's not related to or tied to what's actually happening. It's so interesting to me that there's such a disjuncture. Um, so to what extent does the foreign policy, the white policy paper have a direct impact on what these civil servants are doing around, around the country? I mean, around the world. Thank you. Uh, Kate Clayton has asked, what efforts can we make towards querying IR, academia and theory? So many. <laughs> um, I think, you know, getting into conversation and just talking to some of the emerging queer theory that's happening in IR, it's interesting. So much of this is personal, to be honest. Like, listening to the first session and then thinking about querying IR, you know, like, I heard always at the beginning that, oh, that's such a niche thing. That's so niche, you know? Like, are you engaging in mainstream theory? Like, do you think do you think you'll have a future in that? Whereas, you know, most people who study queer theory look at it as a weapon to destroy everything and nothing is untouchable by it. Um, so I think really, you know, like, including it in the syllabus, you know, when I did my undergrad in IR, I think I had one half of the lecture on feminist IR. You know, we never touch on anything remotely to do, and I think it was still... You know, these days I think it's less awkward and taboo because there are some kind of heavy-hitting academics out there who are producing and they're contributing to, you know, the major, you know, Oxford dictionaries on IR and whatever. But citing and referencing and giving, giving students the option to explore it. Um, and I think also, like, go and read it and look and see if there are some interesting um, researchers that you can use. A lot of queer IR is also post-colonial IR. It's also IR looking at securitization and and the state and it's it's really useful you just have to get over the awkwardness of saying queer I am. Great thank you so much Jess. Um, we'll have to move on to our last paper presentation thanks again for presenting and we'll turn now to the question of enabling authoritarianism in the Indo-Pacific and Australian exceptionalism uh, which is the paper that was written by Dr Beck Strading who you met at the outset of this um, and just to reiterate um, Beck is currently the executive director of La Trobe Asia and she's a senior lecturer in international relations at La Trobe University so over to you Beck. Hi, Jasmine. Uh, it's great to be back. I feel like I've missed the opportunity for a costume change, uh, but never mind. Just before I uh, get into my paper, um, Susan Coles from DFAT uh, in the Melbourne office, I uh, would like to, to make the point that uh, the head of uh, the ambassadorial post is actually the most recent stats have women at 43%. And I also want to take the chance to, um, if people are interested in learning about women uh, in international affairs, in um, civil service, DFAT and so on, there's a great report uh, that was written. Uh, the, the, the main author is Danielle Cave called Foreign Territories, Women in International Relations. And that goes into a lot of detail about um, some of the uh, issues facing other sorts of international relations vocations. So I just wanted to uh, put that in before I start. Uh, my paper uh, is uh, really makes a, a kind of simple argument that even though Western states uh, often present themselves as global democracy 
promoters, uh, they will often ignore authoritarianism within particular states if it suits their interests. So, uh, you know, there is a tendency to turn a blind eye when governments think that it's in their, their national interest to do so. Uh, and this is, this kind of double standard is something that in the international relations literature has been, uh, <laughs> there's no, no shortage of literature about the United States uh, in terms of this exceptionalism. And often that's the term that's used, US exceptionalism, uh, that relates to this, this turning of the blind eye. So really what I was wanting to look at uh, with my article is that middle powers do this too. This isn't just something that great powers can do because they can afford to, uh, they can afford to be hypocritical because they're great and they're big and so on, uh, that actually states like Australia uh, can also uh, not just turn a blind eye to authoritarianism, but to also carve out exemptions for themselves in terms of their own state behaviour. So this article brings together three threads um, that my research more generally has engaged with. The first, I've long been interested in the ways that domestic politics affects foreign policy. Uh, so what's going on in the electorate, the sort of um, governmental priorities uh, that are driven from their relationship with the domestic public and how that then affects how we relate uh, uh, internationally. The second is, like many of the papers in this special issue, I have a real interest in the use of narrative uh, and discourse uh, in international relations, particularly in terms of the ways in which states present themselves and promote their particular identities and the reasons why they seek to do this. So uh, one of uh, the sorts of identities uh, that, that Australia seeks to promote for itself is that it is a democratic Indo-Pacific state uh, and that that is the kind of standard of governance uh, that it promotes uh, within the region. And we can see that uh, in various uh, declaratory policies, many of which have been mentioned uh, earlier uh, in this session. So this democracy promotion angle is something that uh, really interests me as well. Uh, and my, my other work has focused quite a lot on the rules-based order. This is a phrase that's used as both a proxy for a US-led regional order, as well as a way of talking about China without talking about China directly. Uh, but my question about that is, you know, it, does that create a kind of rhetorical straitjacket? So if Australia keeps talking about the rules and how important the rules are, does that then mean that it is more likely to comply with the rules or will it continue to seek out exemptions for itself uh, in particular circumstances, particularly when uh, there is an electoral sort of priority at play? So that was the driving force for this article. Uh, and I'm really thankful um, to the anonymous reviewers and to the workshop for giving me some ideas that I might not have thought about. The first is this idea of looking at the American exceptional uh, exceptionalism literature, because that's really where the idea of Australian exemptionalism was born. Uh, and that's sort of the centrepiece of, of the article. Uh, and also to be looking at this idea that big powers are able to, uh, you know, 
have these exceptional behaviours, but it's rarely sort of uh, applied to middle powers. So I decided to look at Nauru as a case study. Now, Nauru is a small island state uh, in, the, in the South Pacific. And of course, in this region, Australia is the big power, right? So <laughs> Australia is the one that is the seen uh, to be a, a kind of a bit of a, a, a bully, if you like, in this region. Um, so I was really interested uh, in explaining the conditions under which middle powers might engage in norm-breaking behaviour. Uh, and Nauru, uh, what I did in the paper is I looked at the securitization of asylum seekers. So in a lot of ways, my paper links in quite well with Jazz's paper. Um, and uh, the securitization of asylum seekers for the purposes of uh, electoral politics. Uh, so this is seen as a particularly difficult issue for governments and there has been over time uh, a sort of increasing, um, I guess, a concern about asylum seekers, particularly 2001 on, uh, and it has become a significant electoral issue. And that this has contributed to Australia carving out an exception for itself, not just in terms of adherence to international refugee law and human rights. There is quite a lot of um, information about that already, but also in terms of these efforts to promote democracy uh, in the region, as well as to promote democracy as the kind of only standard of, of government uh, that is legitimate or acceptable within the international community. So what the article does in the final section is it tracks uh, Australia's funding uh, in relation to the regional processing centres that were re-established uh, in Nauru as a way of Australia being able to deal with its asylum seeker issue. Uh, at the same time as tracking the decline in democracy and democratic standards in Nauru, and it links those, it, it suggests that there is an interrelation between those two dynamics. Uh, so essentially, uh, the paper argues that democratic processes within Australia, particularly around those formal democratic elections, uh, public opinion, uh, has ultimately produced an undemocratic outcome in foreign policy. Thanks so much, Beck. We've got time for a couple of questions if you want to pop them in the Q&A. Um, while we wait for any to come through, um, I would love to know your thoughts, Beck, on whether you think any of that is likely to change. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I think it's contingent upon a set of policies, right? There are, there are, there's another case, which I know quite well, um, through my other work, which is the Timor Sea uh, dispute, where the rules-based order narrative did actually compel Australia to change some of its policies, not in all, not not entirely, um, and and not without um, you know it's it's not as if I'm I'm saying that there's a complete backflip on that, but that um, you know that the rules-based order was used uh, as a way of discussing China's actions in the South China Sea, but because of all of the public um, approbation or disapprobation about um, Australia's policy in the Timor Sea, it did kind of force uh, a rethink in policy. And so there are examples where you know, public opinion can change foreign policy, but I, I think on this particular issue, uh, the refugee issue, I don't, um, or the asylum seeker issue in particular, um, I'm not sure that either of the major parties are really, you know, ready to adopt 
a, a really different set of policies to the ones that are already in place. Yeah, thank you. We've had a question come through from Melba uh, asking uh, or saying, <clears throat> sorry, authoritarianism is a spectrum too. How would you put Australian authoritarianism on that spectrum? Absolutely, I agree 100%. And part of the interest that drives this is thinking about the dichotomy between autocracy promotion and democracy promotion, which is in the comparative literature, and the article does go into that. Uh, and, you know, as, as far as I can see on that, there's a lot of grey areas in between those two models that are being presented. And so there is this issue of promote... My paper talks about the promotion of um, you know undemocratic outcomes in foreign policy, but there are these other substantive issues around Australia's own democracy, uh, and I have actually been meaning to write something on this uh, where we're talking about you know Western democracies as being you know uh, as uh, as a as something um, that informs. Australia's approach to cooperation in the region. For example, in the foreign policy white paper, it talks about the first, the priority states of engagement are the democracies in the Indo-Pacific, but how that can actually disguise um, some of the, the really troubling things that are going on in our own country. And we also just uh, briefly, we also tend to, I think, look at other leaders like Trump, or Modi or Jokowi, and we go, oh, well, look, there's democratic decline or there's a rise in nationalism or a rise in populism, but we don't always see that as something that is happening here, and I don't think that we can afford to be complacent on that. Thanks so much. Unfortunately, there are more questions, as there always are, and we're running very quickly out of time, um, and we will be booted off this webinar before too long. So I want to thank all of our panellists and contributors to the special issue again uh, for their excellent uh, papers and presentations. Thanks to everyone who's uh, participated in this discussion and asked questions. I'd encourage you to look up the special issue, and obviously, if there are issues um, of interest that you'd like to follow up with any of our panellists, get in touch with them. Uh, and I'll hand back over to Beck now to close this session. Uh, yeah, I would also like to thank our panellists today, Sarah and Sarah, and to uh, the contributors of this uh, important special issue. I have to say to all of the contributors, this, I'm not sure about you, but certainly for me, it's been one of the most fulfilling projects of my career to date. Uh, and I think it's produced a really uh, good special issue, a, a tremendous special issue, uh, but it's also created some really good relationships. Uh, and these are the sorts of relationships and networks that ultimately I think will make it easier for us as we pursue our academic careers. So I wanna thank you all for participating. I also want to thank Jasmine uh, for being a partner in crime throughout this whole uh, process. Also putting up with me, that's very important to thank Jasmine for that. And also um, for doing a tremendous job at chairing and for helping La Trobe Asia every step of the way putting together this webinar. So thank you, Jasmine. Uh, this webinar has been recorded. If you've registered for the event, you will get the link when it's ready. Uh, I might just plug our next webinar, which is on the 15th of June, which is the launch of the book, my book that Priya mentioned on the South China Sea and the maritime rules-based order. Uh, and you can follow us on Twitter at Latrobe Asia or join our mailing list to find more details for online events and Latrobe Asia publications. So thank you again. Um, it's been terrific conversation.